Demagogue, the definitive biography of Senator Joe McCarthy, based on first-ever access to the senator's personal and professional papers and recently unsealed transcripts of his closed-door congressional hearings from New York Times best-selling author Larry Tai. Available now. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. Well into the second month of the pandemic, U.S. slaughterhouses opted to continue business as usual, or even to speed up production, while the coronavirus spread at disproportionately high rates among their workers. When the needs of the market forced the hands of agricultural conglomerates, millions of animals were culled and their carcasses were left to rot rather than feed millions of unemployed Americans. And the financial repercussions were passed on to farmers. Like many aspects of the United States' response to COVID-19, this grotesque story is an extreme manifestation of long-standing problems with farming, labor, and social justice that stretches back to the founding of the country. In the July issue, Audrea Lim writes about community land trusts, a form of ownership that allows land to be collectively controlled by the community that lives on it. I spoke with Lim about the strengths of the community land trust model and about new communities, a legendary CLT that was once the largest single tract of Black-owned farmland in the United States. So I, I wanted to start off by asking, you know, it seems likely that even people who know a thing or two about community land trusts won't have heard of new communities, which, as your piece reveals, was the first modern-day trial of the idea. And my, worth mentioning, my co-producer, uh, who grew up in Georgia and has a number of friends from Albany, said he was surprised to have never heard of it before your piece. So what was New Communities, and why do you think there's so little public knowledge about such a groundbreaking and largely successful experiment? Yeah, so uh, New Communities, I mean, they were a Black-led community and farm cooperative that was built on, you know, 6,000 acres of collectively owned land in Southwest Georgia. It was an experiment that actually came out of the civil rights movement in Southwest Georgia. And it existed from like 1969 to like 1984 or five. Mm -hmm. And that's when the USDA's racial discriminatory practices uh, along with a drought, like finally did them in. And so at the time, it was the largest Black-owned plot of land in the States. And the activists, they actually, when they were sort of building this, this project, they actually drew on this research delegation that they took to Israel uh, in the late 60s, where they were studying like these different collective land settlements there. Probably the most well-known of those models is uh, the kibbutz. Mm -hmm. You know, there's obviously like the complicated fact of this all being Palestinian land. Mm -hmm. But apart from that, like the civil rights activists, they saw in these collective land models some really incredible potential for building economic power among black farmers in the South. So I'm actually not entirely sure why so few people know about this. It surprises me as well. But, you know, I suspect there's a few things that have contributed to it. I mean, first is just the fact that basic fact that 
most people out there have no idea what a community land trust is. Um, you know, there's about 260 now in the U.S. And, you know, there's definitely the number is growing. There's definitely growing interest in them, especially as a solution for affordable housing. But, you know, they still make up a very tiny marginal piece of both the housing market and the land market in the U.S. And, you know, I personally sort of believe that part of the reason for this is that we live in a country where the idea of private property, including private land, or, you know, maybe especially private land, Mm -hmm. that idea is really, is basically like sacrosanct. And community land trusts are basically a collective land ownership model. It's an alternative to the private property model. And, you know, in the US, I think there's a real uphill battle in convincing people that this is an idea that's you know, worth considering, much less even like a good idea. But I would say that even within the community land trust world, I think the new community story isn't as widely known as you might expect it to be. Mm -hmm. The community land trust world today has, it's really come to be seen as synonymous with being an affordable housing solution, you know, kind of along the lines of the community land trust that Bernie Sanders helped to launch in Burlington Mm -hmm. in the 80s when he was mayor. That's now like the largest community land trust in the country. And, you know, this makes up a lot of the CLT world, this like focus on affordable housing. And what I've personally observed, and also what I've just heard from some other folks, is that, I mean, it is pretty white, technocratic, wonky world of like city planner (laughs) types. And that's fine. But I think this world is also a lot, it's not very enmeshed in the world of like grassroots movements and particularly like poor. Well, I mean, there was, there was Fannie Lou Hamer and the Freedom Mm -hmm. Farms Cooperative, which was sort of a similar idea that was happening roughly contemporaneous to new communities. So was there connection with that or like, I mean, because again, yeah. we you mentioned the racism of the USDA, and of course, why stop with the USDA? So <laughs> we could get into that. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I think makes new communities different is that they did come out of, they came out of like the civil rights movement, yes, but also the way that they conceptualized community land trust was like a little bit different than what exists now. And part of that was that they were, yeah, not only part of the civil rights movements, but they were working with these poor black farmers, and they were thinking about ways to build power. And so yeah, the late 60s was a super interesting time when it comes to these sorts of projects. Mm -hmm. They absolutely, New Communities absolutely was not the only project that was building, I mean, the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, Land Assistance Fund, they also started in the late 60s. Uh, Shirley Sherrod, actually, I didn't like write about this in the piece, but she went on and worked for them Mm -hmm. after New Communities ended for like a couple of decades. As you mentioned, Fannie Lou Hamer also had like a farm cooperative that I think it was in like Mississippi. There were a lot of black farm cooperatives being started in the South during this time. And so it, it came out of this very, very different movement. And I mean, the thing that actually surprised me when I spoke to Shirley Sherrod at, so I met her uh, basically in, yeah, October in Albany during the sort of 50th anniversary event for New Communities. Up until a few years ago, actually, she had no idea that what they had, this model 
this land ownership model that they had built at New Communities had taken on a life of its own. So, I mean, New Communities went under in the mid 80s and for decades, she she thought that this model they created had just like died mm. with New Communities. And it was really, there was like a short documentary called Arc of Justice that is worth checking out. I think it came out around like 2016 or something. And, you know, for the launch of this film, they did this like screening at the new school in New York City and they flew in Shirley. Mm -hmm. And they set up this panel discussion with some folks in New York City who are working on community land trusts. And that was actually when she learned that there was this thing called community land trusts. And she was sort of awed by this discovery. And yeah, at this, um, the 50th anniversary in October for new communities, you know, it was this like week long celebration and hundreds of people were there, you know, including people who have built community land trusts in places as far away as like Washington state, Jamaica. Mm -hmm. And the one thing she said in one of her speeches to everyone, and she also later reiterated this to me when I spoke to her, is that. Uh, what she sees as the CLT, the community land trust vision today, is really narrowed to this focus on housing. And it's kind of lost some of the edge, mm -hmm. some of the things that made it much more profound and radical to begin with. And the lost thing was this idea of community control, like democratic control over the land. Mm -hmm. Community ownership was not meant to be an end in itself. You know, it's it was meant to be a means, an avenue for the people who, you know, live in this place, work in this place, spend time in this place, have a stake in it, it was for them to have a democratic, like, real control, a say in building up these spaces, like, according to their own needs and desires. Mm -hmm. And I think the loss of this thing, this, like, component of the New Communities Project and of the original Community Land Trust vision, it is a reflection of how the model today and you know its application the way people talk about it the kinds of spaces where they're talked about they're not really most of them are not social movement spaces mm -hmm. um and what i mean is like the kinds of places where people are doing grassroots organizing working towards like broader social transformation mm -hmm. actually of the places where they live and work but i will say the final thing that i'll say here is that you know with the national uprising that's like happening around the country right now yes. around black lives matter mm -hmm. you know there is this revival of the idea of community control like community control is actually one of the main planks of the movement for black lives their policy platform and that the idea behind that is that you know it's not enough just to invest in services for the black community you know using money that we're going to defund from the police um <laughs> yes we should invest that money but those services also need to be those services and institutions like perhaps including land or housing they need to be controlled by the community right in the way that new communities controlled you know the land its businesses and its operations and so yeah you see this like the the social movement today like the biggest social movement they're saying maybe in history right mm -hmm. u.s history is reviving this sort of like lost element of community control but in this much more broad general kind of way i actually have a piece coming out in the nation sort of looking at this Ooh. Um, well, my own little plug <laughs> yeah nice nice um so actually i wanted to go back and you know you were talking about shirley sherrod 
and Shirley and Charles Sherrod are at the center of your story, and they are just a remarkable husband and, husband and wife team of civil rights organizers. So can you tell us some of the couple's story and what was she like to speak with? Yeah, they're super, they're super interesting couple. Um, so Shirley basically grew up in Southwest Georgia on like, on her family farm in the Jim Crow South. And, you know, when she was a teenager, her father was shot and killed by a white neighbor over like a cattle dispute. And this neighbor was basically acquitted of murder by an all white jury. And it was at that time, as a teenager, she vowed to stay in Southwest Georgia and devote her life to working for change. So this was like in the 60s, mid 60s. And Charles Sherrod had arrived a few years earlier to Albany. He was a young freedom writer, theology student, and he was also the first, I think, SNCC field secretary in the area. He was a SNCC activist Mm -hmm. and he was there to register black voters. He was organizing sit-ins, boycotts, demonstrations against the city's segregated bus stations. And it was part of what I think later became known as the Albany movement. So him and Shirley met after um, he basically knocked on their door, her her family's door. He's going to talk to them about voter registration. And her sisters, I think, thought he was kind of handsome and showed him her picture. She was away at school at the time. And, you know, she later was, you know, she saw him speak at the local church and was captivated by him. And they grew close registering Black voters. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I think it sounds very romantic. And it is. She, <laughs> yeah. She has this memoir actually called Courage to Hope that talks a lot about their relationship and work together. And it's pretty fascinating. And yeah, so I mean, by the late 60s, though, you know, this Albany movement, more than a thousand people had been jailed at different times, uh, including, you know, Martin Luther King Mm -hmm. Jr. And there was this like really intense, violent white, white supremacist backlash against not just their work in Southwest Georgia, but really like the whole civil rights movement in the South and, I mean, throughout America. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the movement didn't seem to be yielding many concrete results in terms of achieving like any measure of real measure of like racial equality. So, you know, basically when SNCC, they kind of dissolved at the end of the 60s, the, the Sherrods and their friends in the Albany civil rights movement, they kind of just like took a step back and reflected on their next move. And they realized that, you know, black folks needed economic stability, economic power, and really just like wealth if they were ever going to achieve real racial equality. And that's what sort of brought them to this idea of building like not just a cooperative farm business, but like a a new community on the basis of collectively owned land. Oh, you asked me what she's like to speak with. Shirley Sherrod is like really lovely to speak with. And, you know, at the anniversary celebration where I met her, I mean, you could see how just like beloved and admired she was by everyone, how like well respected she is. Um, And this is like because she has like literally devoted her entire life to trying to make the lives of poor people in her area better. And yeah, I, I, I just like mentioned earlier after she spent a couple decades after new communities working for, you know, just assisting like countless black farmers through this Federation of Southern Co-ops. She actually later wrote a master's thesis on this topic of like building multi-purpose farm cooperatives 
as a way to save black farms and black land. You know, under Obama, this set her up to become the USDA's first black development, rural development director in Georgia. Hmm. You know, the Sherrods in the 60s also started the Southwest Georgia Project, which still exists today. It's like a nonprofit that carries out their, the grassroots organizing, community organizing aspect of their work. So, I mean, it's like all of these things together, you can see why they're and why she is so beloved and respected in her community. Yeah. An incredible life. You've mentioned that there's so many different types and scales of community land trusts. So what are perhaps your favorite examples besides new communities? And what does one model address that, you know, another one doesn't? Yeah, as I mentioned, there's plenty of folk. Most of the focus on community land trusts revolve around the issue of housing and how it can provide permanently affordable housing to poor people. Um, But I actually think that the most interesting community land trusts are the ones that are sort of using it for different purposes. And okay, so one of them that I think is super interesting and Uh, is the Athens Land Trust that's in Athens, Georgia. It's like just outside of maybe like an hour or two outside of Atlanta. I Mm -hmm. actually visited them after in October after I went to new communities. And I think what they're doing is they're looking at like community development in this really holistic sort of way. So like on the land that they own in this like kind of it's both like a college town and also like a poor black town. So they have housing developments that include both rental apartments and, you know, an entire cul-de-sac of these like cute pastel homes, each in a different color that first time homeowners are able to buy. They also have programs to help like other elderly homeowners whose homes are actually not a part of the Athens Land Trust. These programs help them to maintain their homes so that they can stay in them. And the reason they do this is that they know that having these like well-maintained homes that aren't boarded up in the community, it's, I mean, obviously it's important for maintaining the value of the homes in the land trust, but it's also important for like public safety, you know, so that you don't have like, you know, bands of raccoons (laughs) running around these like boarded up homes and just, yeah, for like having it be a nice place to nice community to live in. But they also have, They have all these community gardens around the city. They have a couple of community farms and a farmer's market that's connected to it where like some of the community land trust members have businesses like a baking business. And then with that, they have like a youth farmers program and farmers, there have been like new young farmers that have come out of this program and they've decided that that's what they want to do and, you know, help to build food security um, and provide like healthy, cheap food to the Athens community after this. And they have programs to teach kids how to cook this food. You know, they also, one of the things that I think is cool about them, they have these like swaths of land that are just like forested with cute little walking trails. And then they have programs to train youth to maintain these grounds. And, you know, these are all components of what make a community nice, like a nice place to live in. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Like it's about so much more than just like houses. And I guess the other kind of a different community land trust that I think is super interesting is right here in New York City. It's just, it's still just starting up. Like Athens Land Trust has been around for like a couple decades. But in the South Bronx, which is, you know, the poorest congressional district in the US, 
it's also like right outside of Manhattan. So mm-hmm. as you can imagine, it's like very quickly gentrifying. Yeah. Even though it's like incredibly heavily polluted and whatever as well. So it's the Mott Haven Port Morris Community Land Stewards. And what they're trying to do is they're working to build a health, education, and art center in this like city-owned vacant property that was once the area's only hospital. And their sort of idea behind this is it's around the idea of gentrification, which is obviously a problem that's about land and it's about housing. But it's also about the fact that these like historic poor communities, they also have a right to have thriving, their own thriving culture and their own cultural spaces and institutions so that local people get to represent themselves to themselves through the arts and culture. And like a lot of the conversation right now around culture and gentrification is about, you know, supporting black owned businesses. And like, yes, as consumers, we absolutely should do that. But the idea here is that like, we can actually go further than that. We can, we can do better. Um, Just, you know, like new communities having ownership over land and space allowed them to build this thriving business which included dozens of people not just like one or two business owners and you know if urban communities today have community control and ownership over space and land that they can use for culture i mean that could really help foster a kind of community driven culture in a way that big cities where rent is skyrocketing like a lot of that is disappearing right or or, a, you know, government assisted housing where, you know, it's means tested and there isn't the care and the feeling of ownership that there would be in a situation like, you know, a community land trust like you're describing. And I mean, your piece, your piece includes some pretty grim statistics about the extreme inequalities of farm ownership in the U.S. I mean, farm ownership in the U.S. is in a pretty sorry state right now. But white farmers own 90% of farms and 94% of farm acreage and 98% of net farm income. And land ownership by black farms peaked way back in the 19-teens. And I apologize because this is kind of a huge question and one that might partly be answered by looking at the fate of the first iteration of new communities. But what are some of the factors that led us to this place? Yeah, it's a huge question, but it's like, I think it's a a really, really important one. And it's really hardly just a, a, like, quote unquote, black problem. Like, it's really linked to the central role that white supremacy has played in shaping America, and specifically Mm -hmm. America's, like, land ownership and stewardship system over centuries. I mean, this, we all know that this was land that was stolen from Native people, But, you know, that theft was also directly linked to the setup of the private land system that exists today, right? It not only encouraged white settlement throughout the U.S., uh, especially the West in the 19th century. I mean, it basically gave, you know, federal programs gave these plots away to white homesteaders for free, basically. Um, And on top of that, it also encouraged, like, really insane land speculation and, like, land grabs and land rushes, like, right from the beginning, you know, it drove up land prices right from the very beginning. And this is just like, it's baked into the system. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of what it was intended, not exactly what it was intended to do, but like, this is Jeffersonian agrarian democracy. Like he helped to establish America 
as a nation of small white farmers, each with their own private plots of land. And like, this is what it looks like. Mm-hmm. But I mean, the story of how Native people have continued to lose their land over centuries is way too big to get into here. But I will also just point out that, you know, many tribes are still losing lands within their reservations that have been transformed into private property. It's been fractionated. And it's, as a result, like fallen into non-Native hands. You know, there's tribes who own less than like 10% or even less than 5% of the land within their reservations, which is, I, I think, a thing that a lot of people don't know. And then there's also, you know, like the Mexican farm workers and Chinese immigrant miners that white landowners, white industrialists, they were employing for cheap in the 19th and 20th century, you know, on their own lands. And, you know, these people didn't exactly have the capital to like buy that land either. But yeah, there is this like fairly well-documented story of black land loss that's really the result of the entire system, financial system, economic system, political system being just like stacked against black people. I mean, this is like everything from bad mortgages on the land Mm -hmm. to like racial discrimination by banks who denied them credit, uh, racial discrimination by the USDA for grants, for aid, for just even information to like help them run these really difficult businesses. And the USDA has not just discriminate against black farmers. There were also there was also a class action lawsuit by native farmers that was settled shortly after Pigford and Glickman. You know, mm-hmm. Latinx farmers and women farmers have also made similar efforts. And I mean the historian Pete Daniels has this pretty excellent book. Um, I think it's called Dispossession. And it details how actually in the civil rights area when like we think of that as a time when people of color won all kinds of protection and like we did but black farmers during that era actually lost a ton of land because of this kind of systematic discrimination and like it still is very much happening today you know for reasons that are like both kind of complex but also kind of not it's in a way it's quite simple and I think the simple way of looking at it is that our private land system creates all kinds of these like difficult, sometimes impossible hurdles for poor people. Like the mortgages with terrible terms that people can't keep up with. There's like complications with land that gets inherited by like multiple heirs mm-hmm. that require lawyers, expertise to just sort out. And then there's also just like the cost of maintaining land once farmers get old and like their children don't want to be farmers because it's really hard. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, meanwhile, all of this is happening as like wealthy landowners, private equity, corporations are just like snapping up land throughout the country. Like there's land consolidation also happening. And, you know, there's reports of like, yes, there's some shady targeting of black elderly landowners, but also, you know, like with all these difficulties dealing with titles and also like the U.S. just offers no social support to retired or elderly folks, mm-hmm. like very little. And I, I can totally understand why it would just like make so much more financial sense to sell off your land to a corporation or whatever, and then take that wad of cash to like support your retirement. So yeah. it's really just like a systematic, it's a systemic problem. Right. And I guess what w- would you say that the bizarre system of farm subsidies in the U.S. where farmers are encouraged to 
basically overproduce certain types of crops. And then now there's this weird trade war that isn't a trade war that's really boring, but also it's causing people to lose land that has been in their families for generations. Like, does that the weird system of being like you can only grow corn and soybeans and that's it has that i mean how does that fit into all of this yeah well a lot of this the thing about like our trade systems and a lot of our policies and also just like our banking system or whatever it really just like favors large land like people with a lot of capital hmm. um and people who can get credit from from banks and yeah, it's like farming is such a difficult, the margins are so thin. Yeah. Uh, and it's so capital intensive. It like requires, when you're starting up as a farmer, you have to even just if you want to purchase land, it's like, uh, you need capital to yeah. do that, or you need like good credit. And even if you choose not to do that, and just to rent, you have to buy a ton of equipment, you probably have to build bar, uh, a barn, mm -hmm. you have to build maybe like water infrastructure. And then if you all you can get is like a five year lease on a land, then you have to do that all over again, yep. like at, on your next plot of land. And it's just starting out as like a small farmer with very little support is just like incredibly difficult. And then, yeah, the large corporate industrial farmers who have all the capital and who are snapping up a lot of the land. Yeah, they're they're getting subsidized. Yeah. As well. So. Yeah. But you had mentioned Pigford versus Glickman, and that's sort of like the uplifting note that your article ends on. Because in that case, Pigford versus Glickman, the US District Court awarded one billion, which is the largest civil rights settlement in U.S. history to thousands of black farmers whom the USDA had discriminated against by denying loans and grants. And new communities received the largest settlement, which was $12 million. So you don't go into detail in the piece, but what did you learn about the history of this court case? And how were these farmers able to win where so many similar cases failed? So I... I actually don't feel like I really know the answer to this question, but one thing that I can, I did observe was that one of the things behind this, this one case was that there was a large coalition of like social justice oriented legal teams and social justice organizations that helped to get these farmers. And we're talking like thousands of farmers, not like a dozen or something it helped these people to get their claims together, provide trainings, legal trainings, you know, organize them, help them with paperwork. And, you know, I think some of these groups included like the Federation of Southern Cooperatives that um, Shirley worked at for a long time. And, you know, like the Land Loss Prevention Project in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. But I think having that like infrastructure and this, yeah, so social movement infrastructure really it helped regular and especially poor people um, navigate the legal system. And that's, you know, really important. Um, it, it takes also like a great deal of coordination. But yeah, why, what exactly made them successful when like other cases in the past had failed? I don't, I don't really know the answer to that. Yeah, it's complicated because again, so much of this is, as you say, geared towards these you know, large scale landowners, but all of it is 
kind of presented in the press, you know, when it's when it's time to go to Iowa for the caucuses. It's, oh, here are these small farmers and here, look, we're helping them and ethanol subsidies and yada, yada, yada. And it's like, well, there's so many more layers than that. And again, it's not transparent for them and it's certainly not transparent for us. But I think you did a really excellent job in peeling back this history and, you know, talking about the charades and new communities. And I actually, I wanted to end, um, they have taken their reward from that settlement and they were able to resurrect new communities as a new farm, which is called Rasora. And what was it like to be there after having done all of this research about this history? It was like incredibly powerful and moving. Um, it's actually hard to convey how powerful it felt. I probably got weepy a few times yeah. um, while I was there. But you know, Rasora is actually is actually on a former plantation that was once. It once belonged to the estate of Georgia's like largest slave owner. Wow. And there's this beautiful, ornate, stately plantation house at the center of it. And it's really kind of eerie. And yeah, you know, like I mentioned, I was there for this like big celebration. And there were like at least a few black activists who I spoke to that weekend who were visiting from like out of town who were there for the first time. And, you know, several of them talked about how in awe they sort of felt about I mean first just like imagining the terrors that must have happened here in the past mm-hmm. um thinking about like their own grandparents obviously not at this site but in similar yeah sites yeah. and the things that would have happened to them there and then being in this place and seeing that this former slave plantation was now it's not only owned by like black people but this was a place this is this like expression of like black collective power mm-hmm. and resilience yeah and i mean i'm not black i'm asian but like i could i could feel it too yeah yeah it's um i don't know it, like you say it's just an amazing testament to the resilience of black people in this country that has literally done everything to undermine and disenfranchise them since the beginning and continues to do so basically so yeah. Yeah. Um, and I don't say that to be glib. It's just it is it's such a vast thing that, you know, you can't you can't really express it. So, yeah. Uh, but I guess on a uplifting note, like we are we're talking in this moment when there's all this this national this uprising. Yes. That's happening. And it feels like, I don't know, some kind of a turning point. I don't know what kind, you know, but. It is a turning point. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. We can. It's an opportunity. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are taking the opportunity, whereas in the past they would have just said, oh, this isn't my fight. But. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think we can end it there. So thank you. Yeah, thanks. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save 